What is up, everyone? Before we get into this episode, I just want to thank our sponsors, the African Students Association from the University of Notre Dame, for sponsoring us. And let's hear a bit more about what they have to say about their Pan African Youth Conference, which will be happening in March. Kwame Nkrumah, Julius Nyedere, Nelson Mandela, Patrice Lumumba. The historic mission of that first generation of African leaders was to liberate Africa from the throngs of colonialism and imperial domination. Thomas Sankara, Yoweri Museveni, Jerry Rawlings. The historic mission of the second generation of African leaders was to consolidate the gains from independence and to set Africa on the path to socio-economic transformation. As the current generation of young Africans, we too are faced with an important task of first, discovering what our historic mission is as a generation, and secondly, deciding whether to fulfill or betray that mission. Thus, the African Students Association of the University of Notre Dame will host a virtual edition of the Pan-African Youth Conference, which will bring together a Pan-African network of university students from Africa and across the world. Participants at the conference will grapple with four critical questions that are pertinent to our understanding of our historic mission as a generation. One, who are we as Africans? Where are we as a continent? How did we get here? And most importantly, where and how do we go from here? The conference will feature a keynote address from one of contemporary Africa's foremost thought leaders, Professor Achille Mbembe from the University of Cape Town. We invite you to be part of a Pan-African network of young Africans seeking to discover the historic mission of our generation and to fulfill it. Africa needs you. Will you answer the call? To register for this event, Follow the link in my bio, on my Instagram, or my TikTok. Let's get right into the episode. We are back, everyone. This is episode two of Pariah Nation. Today, we're going to be discussing the pitfalls of African leadership. And I have two very special guests with me today, Trevor Luere and Iuna. Would you just like to introduce yourselves? We'll start off with Trevor. Hi, everybody. My name is Trevor. Uh, I'm an economic student in my third year at the University of Notre Dame, uh, and I'm originally from Uganda. Excited to be part of this conversation today. Perfect. And let's hear from Iuna. Hello, everyone. My name is Iuna. I'm Nigerian. I go to the University of Winnipeg, Canada. I'm studying sociology and film. I'm in my third year, and I'm also a socialist. So. Perfect, perfect, perfect. I'm really, really excited to have you guys on. Um, as I said, this is going to be a podcast that I think is one of the most important ones that we've done, because I've noticed one thing in the discourse of African politics. And, you know, uh, if you're looking at economic growth, all these different things, it all comes under the umbrella of leadership. We're all looking at who is, you know, going to lead us uh, out of, you know, this post-colonial era that we've sort of entered into. Um, we know a lot of our economies are monoculture economies. We're trying to find a way to be able to progress at the same time, bring uh, down the poverty levels and to be able to provide opportunity. And we have recently seen in the last 10, 20 years, this idea of Afrofuturism, an Africa that is progressing, one that is futuristic, one that will be leading the world in terms of the economy, etc. So obviously, when we're actualizing these ideas, we need to think about who are our leaders and 
arguably, I've heard most people say that Africa doesn't exactly have the best leaders. So let's hear from, just to sort of break the ice a bit, uh, I want to know from each one of you, who is your favorite African leader and why? Let's start off with Trevor. And they can be alive or dead, by the way. Uh, favorite African leader. Um, uh, I think Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, in as far as his distillation of uh, Africa's problem is concerned and the, you know, uh, prognosis he made of what we need to do uh, to finally emancipate ourselves totally, both politically and economically, especially in the question of Pan-Africanism, the eventual political integration of Africa and the economic integration. Uh, which I'm happy I started to take root under the continental free trade area that um, got underway on the first of, of, of this month. So um, there's a lot to pick from, but uh, Nkrumah will do it. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people, you know, Nkrumah is one of the favorites of a lot of people. Um, a lot of people don't know that he had, I think it was five assassination attempts. He, he barely escaped like with his life. And a lot of people don't realize that. Um, obviously, even the, the CIA, um, they had, they knew that there was a coup that was going to happen and they were definitely, they didn't like Nkrumah. And even when he was flying over to, I believe it was, he was trying to sort out the, the, the sort of the issue in Vietnam. And from there, he was just sort of taken off out of his position, you know, and I think it just goes to show like, you know, that first era of leadership was more like, you know, it was more like if I can call them dictators, people wouldn't really have term limits. And it makes us really wonder, like, these are the visionaries, right? And right now we sort of look at them now. Is there, is it possible that we see them differently now than they were seen by the one people back then? That's something we'll, we might delve into later in the podcast, but let's hear from EU now. Who's your favorite African leader and why? Um, I think it's Kwame Nkrumah too, because Kwame Nkrumah was very instrumental in um, the end of colonization on the continent. Kwame Nkrumah was a great African socialist. He was a person that he, he led by example from what he, you know, from what he did and what he wrote. He, he can, like, there's no contradiction between like those two. And um, new, like, the leaders of today have like, co-opted some of his ideas, like the um, free trade um, agreements that he signed January first was Kwame Nkrumah's. Um, ultimate goal, but you know, unfortunately, that didn't happen during this time. But yeah, I just feel like you know, the whole continent at large wasn't really ready for the uh, Kwame Nkrumah when Kwame Nkrumah was alive. Yeah, no, I have to, I have to agree with that sentiment. I don't think that. I mean, that time was like you know, it's a bit of a crucible. Though it's a crucible of ideas, just sort of you know, it was heating up. People were debating, oh, do you want to be socialist? Do you want to be capitalist? in this era and there was so many different ideas and of, of course there was foreign intervention. Uh, we can talk about leaders like Lumumba and how the Katanga province, how they surprisingly just decided to secede uh, after independence and how Lumumba started you know, talking about how he wanted to nationalize uh, the mines and all of the national resources. He wanted to nationalize all of that. And then somehow the Belgian soldiers stayed behind in order to keep peace. I mean, yeah, foreign intervention was a very much, it was very much a real thing. And um, I feel like 
to an extent that's really just hit out at the capacity that African leaders have to be able to make the changes that they want to, especially in the earlier stages. And we'll discuss the impact that that's definitely had. I think for me, if I was to look back and look at a, a leader and say that, you know, damn, this is someone I really look up to, it had to have been Thomas Sankara. So yes, they, he did see his power in a coup. And yes, there are obviously things that he did that I didn't agree with, but I, I really respected him for the fact that he lived a, a humble life for a leader. Apparently his only possessions were his bicycle and it was a guitar that he was given for his birthday when he was really young. And he lived in a very modest home uh, he allowed, obviously, he stopped desertification by planting trees along the desert line. And he did this by creating a scheme whereby if you're getting married, you buy a tree and it became culture. So that, with, I mean, that's really smart, a, way, a smart way of creating policy. But compared to, for example, the GERD in Ethiopia during that time when they had a, an issue to do with, you know, food and drought, all these different things, they decided to you know, to put people on buses, like I think it was almost like, you know, 100,000, more than 100,000, and they would, you know, take them to different parts of Ethiopia. And that caused an even worse crisis. So if you look at, you know, obviously the leaders back then, there's definitely people like that have done a lot for their countries. Even for example, when we talk about Sankara, the, the mass vaccinations, I think it was polio vaccinations of the youth, uh, the literacy rates. So these things are definitely like unheard of. And this was only in four years. People could only ask or speculate what he could have done with maybe 10 years. You know, these are things that we have to sort of ask. Uh, but uh, I mean, that's definitely, it's a definitely a good start. Um, and I think we will now delve into, you know, the modern day. Uh, I want to ask you guys, what is, what is your general opinion on the state of African leadership in the continent today with term limits being extended, uh, many leaders not doing it for the sake of you know, their countries, but for the sake of filling up their pockets. I mean, what, what, are, what are your opinions on that? Let's start off. Anyone can talk. It's just really in shambles, to be honest. I don't think you can, you can name five or 10 good African leaders. They're all just the same, to be honest. Like to, with the um, Uganda situation, no African leader even said anything about it. Like where was the African Union? I thought we had an African Union. They are not even doing anything about it. No one is like, you know, saying anything about it. So it's just really, really like, I don't know. It's just all over the place. And even with the situation in Nigeria, so the answer situation, like they didn't say anything, but they were tweeting, like they're tweeting about Donald Trump or congratulating Biden. Like it doesn't really make any sense. I, I don't know. I think it is a, um, generalizations are dangerous uh, first and foremost but i also think it's important that we contextualize this you know our 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 our, our judgments of african leadership today within uh, uh, the unique circumstances obtaining on the continent and so from on that basis i i think it's difficult to make a a sweeping statement that all african leaders are good all of them are bad or even all of them are mediocre it must be certainly taken from uh, on a case-by-case -case basis. It's definitely, there are cases on the continent where by some measures, there are some bright spots. If you talk about economic development, I think of the top fastest developing economies in the world, 10 of the African continent. Uh, but at the same time, you also have democratic backsliding in many places on the continent. You have the resurgence of conflict in many parts of the continent. 
you have a war now in Ethiopia. You have the conflict of South Sudan that is ongoing. You have the uh, conflict in the Central African Republic. You have the Boko Haram in, in Nigeria. You have the crisis, economic crisis in Zimbabwe. Uh, uh, so to, 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 to just pass a sweeping statement that all African leaders are bad without uh, examining the unique circumstances within which each leader finds themselves, I don't think that's justice to the question. So uh, I think this present generation of leadership is facing a unique uh, set of circumstances, even within individual, individual countries. In countries like Rwanda, President Kagame is uh, doing tremendous work as far as uh, economic development is concerned. Uh, the flip side is that uh, some people are concerned about the consolidation of democracy in that country. Uh, and then the old debate rages on what comes before the other. Should we uh, close an eye to disregard for human rights and other such things? Uh, for economic development or vice versa. Uh, in places like Uganda, in the last uh, 600 years, we've never had consistent peace and stability as we've had over the last 30 years under President Museveni. We've not had sustained economic development as we've had under his tenure. But the longer he has stayed, the more his democratic credentials have been brought into question. And then you want to ask, uh, do we close our eyes to his human rights record? Uh, because he's stabilized and pacified the, the country. So I think uh, it's, it's a difficult question to answer at a, at a, at a general level. However, um, the charge uh, that uh, Nkuruma uh, made, you know, the founding of the African Organization of African Unity back in 1963, uh, and people who are, you know, siding with him in that uh, thinking line of thought, people like Julius Nyerere of Tanzania, was the question of the, the survival of Africa being contingent upon African unity. We are, we are, we are, we are, we were sucked into a global system, global capitalism on which we are on the fringes, okay? And uh, in as far as economic development goes, each of our countries and their own as small territories are not very viable economic entities. And so unless we have some integration at an economic level, it becomes difficult for us to have meaningful uh, economic development. So on that front, be, to the extent that we have failed to heed the call of those who have come before us, the Nkurumas, the Nyerere's, the Samora Marshalls, uh, to consolidate African unity in real tangible ways, uh, I think uh, that is it's, it's still evading our leadership and, and, and that's an indictment on them, uh, the failure to uh, accelerate the process of African integration, but again, there's progress being made now uh, with the African continent of free trade area, which is definitely a move in the right direction. So I think every specific country is faced with its unique challenges. And I wouldn't be surprised if African leaders do not comment on issues happening across borders, not because they do not care, but because the principle of sovereignty is a real thing, okay? Uh, what a, a right does a President Buhari have to comment about happenings in Kenya? That is interference. And then we must ask a question, what comes first? Should we uh, completely close our eyes to real important questions of the sovereignty of nations that no one else should have a right to interfere in those, in those affairs? Or should we uh, have a leeway within Africa that peers should call out each other in the face of uh, concerning events that are happening in those places? And it's not that easy. 
okay? Because uh, you comment on somebody's domestic democracy record and they're your trade partner and they can retaliate in certain ways. So I try to avoid, you know, trivializing these issues because uh, it's, it's much more complicated. Uh, if, if, if you comment on uh, uh, the situation in South Africa, South Africa can retaliate in a certain way, okay? So the, the, the principle of sovereignty, of, of respecting each other's sovereignty is, is, is important, but also in conflict with human solidarity around values that are important that we cherish as, as, as a continent. And that still hasn't been resolved, not only at an African level, but at, at, a, at a global level as well. So I think we must uh, evaluate every case in its unique circumstances within, in, 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 each, uh, in each African country. Uh, and so my judgment for me passes at the level of the question of African unity, of integration. As far as progress that is concerned, I think the present generation can do much better on that front. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a very multiplex question. And I decided to make it general just to, uh, so we can be able to explore a bit more nuance on the continent and realize that yeah, it's a big continent. There's 54 countries and um, there's so much involved in leadership. And I mean, what are we going to define as leadership? I would say that, I mean, in this in this context, we need to have goals, goals, because leadership, if you're leading someone or leading a group of people, you're leading them somewhere. So the question is, where is that somewhere? Is it economic development? It is, is it better, uh, you know, political systems or better institutions legally? What, what exactly do we want as the African continent? Which is why I think that for now, what we're looking for, I'd say our first priority is possibly, um, and we can see this being, you know, as a common theme in most governments, is to sort of uplift the main or the majority of the population above the poverty line. And not the poverty line as defined by the UN, for example, because that has its own. I mean, I don't know how you're going to define the poverty line for the entire world and expect it to be consistent, right? But in our own way, shape, or form, like, are we really pleased with the numbers of our population that are below in quotes the, the one dollar a day line? I mean, that should be something that we should be focusing on. And if you look at um, most countries that are trying to do that, um, you'll see how aggressive the policies have been. For example, with Ethiopia. Um, the grand renaissance dam that they're building it's like they they went to the the degree that they actually circumvented a, a world commission on dams protocol for building a dam on the same river as other countries where you're a, 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 an upstream nation they circumvented all of those protocols because they knew about the economic benefits that it could be able to generate and i think that what it'll do is obviously it will be able to make um you know a lot of ethiopians get jobs first of all because of the electricity that they're providing in these rural areas, the electrification of rural areas, all of this will be able to allow people to be able to be provided jobs. So far, it seems like it's sustainable on that front. But now there's the question of Egypt. Will Egypt have enough water for its agricultural sector? I mean, this is how, this is literally how it's been manifesting, if you want to consider that. And I think when Trevor brought up the point of Africans uniting, in this case, yeah, this, this is one other example which shows that we really have to unite because a lot of the things we're sharing, we're a huge continent with a large landmass. So we have to really share with each other um, all these different resources and cooperate in our own capacity. And I think um, I do want to also state in relation to, you know, democracy and all that, Trevor did bring up a very good question. It's going to lead us into our, our next sort of section. Um, he talked about democracy and economic development. And uh, what you actually begin to see is that um, with democracy, you, I mean, sorry, with a, 
a larger middle class or if your economic growth is heightened then you have a higher chance of being a successful democracy and this is actually what Dambisa Moyo argues in her book Dead Aid and I wanted to ask you guys you know what do you think do you think that at this moment in time you would be comfortable with a benevolent dictator ruling an African country for let's say maybe 10 20 years or even let's say 10 years and they nominate a successor or a successor gets elected after 15 years 20 years and then now you have another dictator and then when you think we're ready we now shift to a democratic system what do you think that that would do or uh you know and obviously i'm asking a very general question but feel free to specify like you know specific countries but i want to know what you guys think about this sort of paradox we found ourselves in with democracy and economic growth so well before well we're off air uh, i was trying to uh, to make a, a case to you know that uh, there's nothing absolute about about democracy the starting point in response to that question is uh, an understanding that democracy emerged within very specific historic circumstances when you had europe evolving from a, a slave society into a feudal society and finally into a capitalist society as it is today democracy emerged under those conditions because uh, the bourgeoisie class that had overthrown the feudal lords wanted to guarantee for itself political equality uh they had they had one economic power and now to consolidate their newfound position as the ruling class in europe they had to translate that into political power so the liberal democracy we talk about today has nothing absolute about it it emerged within specific historic circumstances the mistake then becomes to want to transplant a, the liberal democracy as it has been conceived in other parts of the world and as it has evolved under very specific circumstances to transplant it wholesale into the african uh setting now if 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 it is true that there are laws that govern how society evolves okay so uh, you know said he's a he's a socialist i assume he's read uh, some work on marx the question of historical materialism uh if we can if we can establish that there are laws that govern how nature evolves uh whether it is darwin's uh, evolutionary theory uh and those that came post darwinism uh equally there are laws that govern how society evolves from communalistic societies to uh, slave societies to feudal societies and now into uh capitalist society and the next logical step being where iuna and his group want to take us which is socialist society uh so the question should be at what stage of of development of historic evolution our african our african societies at and what is the form of democracy that uh, corresponds to that stage of historical evolution the important thing there is that democracy is is is, is a given however its form must be mediated it must be conditioned by the objective conditions that obtain in society at a given period in time okay so our conceptions of democracy unfortunately every time we think of democracy we're thinking about a liberal democracy which is the case in europe which is the case in america and other parts of the world that have adopted this you look at countries like ghana eh, often heralded as Af- africa's most stable democracy and you question what is the participation of citizens in the running of this country ghana is a is a liberal democracy par excellence 
But uh, in as far as participation, participatory democracy is concerned, it is not, okay? So uh, we, we all agree that democracy is important. That is the participation of people. But the form that it takes, uh, the form that democracy takes must be conditioned by the unique circumstances that obtain in a given country at a given time, okay? So for us to want to, to ask Nigeria to be the very same democracy as, as, as the UK is or as America is, countries that have honed their craft at democratic management and practice for over two centuries is not only impractical, but it is sheer madness, okay? It is just against the, 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 the natural laws of the evolution of society. So we must take an interest in uh, examining and studying the state at which our society finds itself today, and then understand what form of democracy corresponds to that stage of, of historic evolution. So in a nutshell, uh, democracies are given, okay? But there's nothing absolute about its form. The form must be conditioned by the unique circumstances that a society finds itself in. So uh, would I be okay with the, uh, a benevolent dictator? I don't think it's a, it's a matter of choice. I mean, if we are at that state of, 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 of development, uh, and that is a, a, what our society requires at that time, <laughs> unfortunately, a, a, what happens then is that progressive elements within society must push for greater allowance of rights a, within the limits of that state of society, okay? So for example, you know the socialist within a capitalist dispensation is going to, to, to seek the greatest rights for workers within the limits of capitalism, hoping that those small quantitative changes will bring about a revolutionary qualitative change to eventually overthrow a capitalism and bring about socialism. Okay, so similarly, under my, under my, uh, if I find myself in a benevolent dictatorship, as indeed have been all over the world, South Korea, for example, under President Park Chang-hee, uh, Chang that was the most inhuman country there was in the world. Um, the guy never used to play. He never used to accommodate any dissent. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, uh, the Asian Tigers in general, their development was marred by gross disregard for human rights. Not to condone it, but society, the nations have been formed out of fire. Nations have been forged in the fires, okay? So uh, it is not, we, we don't need to be too idealistic. We must understand the unique conditions that are obtained in society and then follow up on those. So I, I think a, a democracy has to be conditioned by the state at which society is. You know, I, I know you have something to say. I think by social, Oh, sorry, by historical materialism, you can understand that Africa's social evolution was disrupted by um, America, by European capitalism and imperialism um, from the forms of um, slavery and colonization. So you can't, because of this, you can't just apply liberal democracy, like Trevor said, to the African con to the African context. You have to, you have to consider the states, the social states at which each African country is or the whole continent at large is. And then you create a new democracy or a new style of democracy that fits how the country is, um, how the country is at the moment. Um, as like, as a socialist, like I've heard some Africans say that Thomas Sankara was a dictator. 
it was evil, it was, but if you consider what he did under the four years, I don't think most African leaders have been there that have been elected, you know, true, like they've been elected. Uh, they've not done anything like, as like, even like close to that. So I just feel like, um, I don't really, I don't really care if, you know, it's like, I don't really care if it's a dictator, as long as the material conditions of the people has developed from when he, you know, took power, when she took power, anybody took power. You understand what I mean? I feel like, uh, um, especially um, China, I've used China as an example, uh, Mao Zedong, before the China, Chinese revolution, China was a feudal state. And then he came, he made the country, he made country, um, united the country, and then he developed the country. China will not be what it is today if Mao Zedong never took power. So people must understand that, that for development to happen in Africa, you have to apply, you have to look at the situations and then develop from there. Kwame um, Nkrumah's government was uh, disrupted by this bourgeois um, liberal democratic thinkers that, you know, took out his government because he was a dictator, so to say. But then when you when you read on Kwame Nkrumah's book, Dark Days in, in Ghana, he highlights the success of his administration. And you can see from like when he took power and like when like school in 1965, when it happened, he was able to take so many people from poverty, he was able to give free education. How many liberal democratic governments can give free education or healthcare to to even the middle class. I'm not even saying to the middle class, they can they cannot offer anything to the middle class. They are most of them are just puppets for this Western um for the Western imperial powers. Like look at Congo today. Why do you think they took out Lumumba? So many questions. So I think if people, if Africans look at this very well, I, I feel like there's some Africans that subscribe to liberal democracy, but then praise people like Thomas Sankara and like Kwame Nkrumah. But then they don't understand. I'm sure if they live during this time, they will have called him like an ugly dictator that um, that's against human rights. But you have to understand that if the material conditions of the people increases, it's better because it obviously makes the economy, it drives the economy forward. Yeah, no, I want to add, add to that. I think you guys have brought up very, very interesting points. I think I'm starting to see a bit of a hierarchy of needs here. Um, I mean, we, we have this idea of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And a lot of people talk about, you know, are people going to really care about, for example, um, minority rights or specific kinds of rights or like, you know, political consciousness? Are they really going to care about that when they don't have food on their plate? So that's the first thing. But that's the first thing. It's like, will they will people really care about democracy when there's no food on their plate? And that's one thing that we need to like look at. It's like that makes us question. I mean, I've heard people argued from this perspective. It's like people don't really care if you're a dictator or if you're democratically elected. As Yuna said, if you're putting food on the table, then that's something good. And once you allow people, and I believe me and Trevor had another discussion about this, when you start allowing people to have the basic needs from food, housing, education, water. That's when they start to develop and develop and develop. 
and then their mind sort of have uh, more space to be able to like take in ideas like okay you know what we should probably get democracy and there's more nuance in society because there's more opportunity and that can even lead to things like industrialization um when people are more qualified in terms of like you know skilled labor um some people want to become entrepreneurs some people become professors continue the cycle of education etc so i mean that's one thing i need us to also like look at and i'd, I'd say that when you look at it from that perspective um it really just depends on obviously as i said as as you know said it's like is someone going to get the food on the table and now i want us to actually look at some some data here so if you go to page 50 of dead aid what you're going to find is that there's a study that shows that democratically accountable governments met the basic needs of their citizens by as much as 70% more than non-democratic states that's the first one right and uh when you look at that it's like <laughs> that's the way to put food on people's plate but now you see we're getting into a bit of a paradox situation because it's like oh if you have if you have um a leader that is democratically elected they might be able to meet the needs of the citizens at you know like they they meet the, they already meet the needs of the citizens 70% more than the current leaders that exist in non-democratic states so now should we go for a non-democratic state that's the question right that's one yeah go on trevor yeah, no. no i i think uh, that is a, i don't think that's a correct interpretation of, of that data it's so be interesting to see what uh, countries are included there because reverse causality is a real thing it might very well be the case that uh, countries developed fast then they became democracies and so their ability to provide for their citizens was not enhanced like the causation was not the, the direction of causation wasn't become democratic and therefore you have the economic means to provide for your citizens rather build an economic base and then democracy comes but it finds you able to provide a, a needs for your, for your citizens so i think we, uh, we must clarify the direction of causation in the uh, in that uh, uh, fine yeah no I was, i was actually just about to get to that because uh, there's another supporting study that actually directs you know where, where it basically shows us the, the direction of causality as you described it so i'm not sure i can't really pronounce the name it's a polish name i believe it's prozowski i believe and um in one of their papers called what makes democracies endure they found a strong link between higher per capita gdp and like you know the survival of a democracy so as as, as trevor talked about it's basically you know there has to be a set economic base or at least there has to be economic growth for a democracy to be sustained so if you have a higher gdp per capita the democracy is more likely to survive and that's something that we should look at and i think that for now the priority if we want democracy to, to to be able to work from what we've seen around the world there has to be a strong economic base now as we've talked with iuna there's different ways that you can be able to achieve that uh and i'm basically on the side of yeah you can't just import policies and we've tried this before with the structural adjustment programs from the imf we've tried it and it just hasn't worked out liberal democracy is not some, something that might be suitable for african countries at the moment i think we need to as africans and we've discussed this on another podcast called does africa need democracy we've discussed all the different nuances surrounding democracy leadership economic growth etc and i would come to the conclusion that we need more solutions that are home based even from african african country to other african country it'll change you can't compare botswana to kenya can't compare kenya to egypt these are all different sort of states but i think if i was to go for a specific model i think when you take into account ethnic groups all these different things ethnic federalism seems like a plan where at least there's some level of autonomy if people are living with specific ethnic groups in their country 
or if it's stratified along those lines, it's really important to be able to get people autonomy before obviously sort of things break out. But did uh, Trevor, I think you, you look you're, like you're very much in thoughts. Like, what are your thoughts? Let's take the example of the United States, for example. Um, the founding of the US, uh, despite their proclamations of uh, one country under God, all men are created equal, blah, 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 all that nice sounding uh, uh, liberal jargon. It was not a democracy by any measure, okay? Uh, all men created equal was actually very specific. Uh, it does not include women. It does not include non-white peoples, okay? Even the, the Greek city-state of Athens that uh, is, uh, is touted as the origins of democracy, I'm not so sure of that, but touted as the origins of democracy, was itself not democracy as, as understood as democracy, okay? Because there were, there, were, there were classes within society and only those who qualified as citizens, which was a handful because then you had slaves, then you had uh, plebiscites and you had all these people within, uh, uh, within, the, within the Greek city-state who were not participating actively in the life of the polity, okay? So, but, but, but the US, uh, uh, even granting people a right to vote, whether it was black people or women, the, the participation of all members of the territory, all occupants of the territory in how the public life of the polity was run did not happen until just this last the last century, the 20th century, okay? But America was building incredible wealth, okay? America was building incredible wealth. So if we take the US as an example, then we say, oh, the US today is democratic, but the US is also able to provide a safety net for its citizens. And then we draw the conclusion that because the US is democratic, therefore it is able to provide a safety net. We miss the analysis at two levels. Number one, what, was a, what, what are the conditions necessary for the emergence of democracy? Those are unique and different from the conditions that are necessary for the sustenance of, of democracy. Uh, so when you build a middle class that continues to make demands on the state, you can be guaranteed that the power of the state is going to be tempered more and democracy is going to be sustained. But the emergence of democracy, that is a whole different set of conditions. And nowhere in the world has it emerged from all citizens being able to participate, having political equality, to participate in the life of, uh, of their country or nation or polity, whatever we might call that. Okay, so I, I, I don't even think it is a, it's a thing where we have to choose this or the other. Democracy, democratization is a process. Uh, America that is always lecturing the rest of the world about democratization, women could not vote in that, in that, in that place until the 1920s. Black people could not vote until uh, the 1950s, I believe. Uh, so 50s, yeah. it took a very long time. It took a very long time for that to emerge. Democratization was, uh, was a process. So I think that what, uh, what causes economic, economic development, economic growth and development, Participation of citizens, there's a guy who's written a book, uh, Darren Achimoglu, I think he's at uh, MIT, Why Nations Fail. He makes the argument that uh, inclusive political institutions lead to inclusive economic institutions that lead to innovation and hence economic development. So in other words, more freedom equals to more development. It has been contested uh, and uh, there's no direct link that people who are, people who are freer to participate in political institutions will also therefore lead to greater economic development. The causes of wealth, the causes of economic growth and development are, are not entirely divorced 
from the freedom of individuals to participate in the political life of their nations, but are also not the same as the freedom of individuals to participate in, in their in their in their uh, in the political life of their polity. So these two processes can be parallel and they're always ongoing. Economic growth and development is continuously going to be happening. Democratization is always going to be happening. When people start to make demands for why they should then be equal participants in politics uh, is when they start to inc increasingly be economically empowered, okay? When you're a dependent, you do not have a, any claim to make on anybody, you're a dependent. Either you're a slave or you are a, a serf or you're, you're something, okay? But when you, when you start to break the, the bond of dependency, of bondage, you, you, you break that uh, link, then you can demand your own rights as a full individual with your own conceptions, with your own dignity, seeking to fully individualize yourself in the world, okay? So I don't think those two things are necessarily the same, that what causes uh, development is, 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 is democracy. Uh, the causes of, demo, of, of growth and development are, are, are different, although they can be related to democracy, but those two things don't cause each other. Yeah, I, I definitely see from that perspective. It's a complex question, but Iuna, do you want to tackle it? Um, I totally agree with Trevor about you know, everything he said. I was just going to add that I totally disagree with uh, ethnic nationalism because it is against the unification of Africa. It's totally against Pan-Africanism. And I just think it's, at the end of the day, most people that call for, most people that call for, um, I call for ethnic um, nationalism, uh, the bourgeois people of those ethnic class, they don't you know, communicate with the middle class or lower class people of certain ethnic um, tribes. They just you know, want to establish their own power and just establish an, establish an oligarchy on the power and also oppress their own people instead of just you know, coming together and you know, facing the issue of tribalism in Africa and looking for how we can, you know, uh, build, how we can develop our economy and also develop democracy that works for us. Like you said, when we were talking about America, you can't compare America's demo, democracy, so-called democracy, because it doesn't, it doesn't even make, even the concept of America is, you know, a country found, like that was founded on, on stolen land and genocide of indigenous people. And also the country wouldn't have even been a prominent capitalist country if it didn't enslave Africans to, you know, to drive its economy. So you cannot compare a, you can't compare a system that dehumanizes us as black people and now applied to, you know, it's just going to also fail because look at what's happening in Africa or most African countries, you know, you have the issue of police brutality. You can also you can also compare that to what's up in America too. Like the same way we are not valued as humans, we are also not valued as humans too. In that in the same context. Yeah. Actually, um, let me just re-emphasize the point Iuna made. Very important one. A, for America to build its economic base, it was necessary for it to oppress a significant part of its population, black people, to do the hard work of building America's economic base for it to be able to feed everybody else while these guys were suffering. And you can look that in history, anywhere, the struggle of uh, uh, the working classes, even in, in, the, in the case of the Asian tigers. So ultimately, 
for us to achieve to achieve full democratization is a process and that must be informed by where we are and that is i think a, an important yeah no i totally agree because um what a lot of people sort of miss out and like this is why i mean i i sort of dislike the the ethnocentrism that i'm seeing from a lot of mainly western authors of these books sometimes is that they sort of try and apply western models to african countries not realizing that without slavery and without colonialism there's no way on earth that these con- these like the, the continent of obviously europe specifically western europe um could have gotten to where it is today and all of the colon uh, the colonial powers specifically france and uh, obviously britain and now if you look at the us as well you can definitely make the point that slavery obviously um you know taking out all the different indigenous groups and you know sort of taking away their land one by one manifest destiny all of this white supremacist stuff and like you know even during segregation the prison industrial complex if you put all of that together and you put that into the equation of growth you can't tell me that that was not going to be profitable like you don't just oppress people because a lot of the time it's like you oppress someone because you're going to gain something from it right so I'm, and to all those people who sort of make the point oh no you know why can't african countries just in quotes catch up with western countries it's like you know you're acting as if colonialism was not a successful enterprise it was very su- successful was it not able to provide europe with the raw materials that it needed to power its industries and to to fight its wars even if you look at uh, the drc for example uh, and you look at uh, the bombs that were dropped on hiroshima and nagasaki two thirds of the uranium that was used in those bombs came from the drc and i mean that's that's really ironic it's really ironic like literally and if you want to talk about how africans african countries have been able to help in fact i've just dropped a, a bit of an episode this week where discussed africa's role in contributing to history and we talked about obviously you know like you know the shells that were made uh, especially for world wars you know all of these the different you know the shells the bronze caps for some of the bullets a lot of that also came from the african continent soldiers came from the african continent so obviously it was a very successful enterprise so i think it's a, it's a bit fallacious to be able to declare that oh you know we we as the west have the best system of democracy and governance therefore you should have it too it makes no sense to me it's ethnocentric and it's it's disregarding the state of african nations at the current moment and even just to respond to iuna about the ethnic i was referring to ethnic federalism so for example like the system that they have in ethiopia where like you know it's very um obviously there's different rural areas where the ethnic diversity is extremely low so you have literally like one tribe is in like one area and if you don't if you for example if one tribe is the one that's taking national leadership you tend to have an issue because you can have one tribe oppressing the other but if you have autonomy at least those tribes that are living in the rural areas at least they can be able to with their own norms and their own specific issues social economic etc they can be able to rule over themselves but i think that we've we've sort of dwelt uh, along this issue a bit too long um but that's fine that's fine we still have time uh but i wanted to discuss obviously what kind of leader does the african continent want and i'll start off with you know the first characteristic that i want to address in in terms of our current leaders and i'm going to get you a bit of a statistics that we can sort of ponder on and i want to know your opinion so the average age of the continent is 19.5 and i think we we are the youngest continent by median age why is the average age of leadership on the african continent 65 years old this is a this is a thing do you think africa needs younger leaders uh that 
and obviously I'm, I'm, I'm saying young elitists in terms of contextualizing things, being able to see from different perspectives. I mean, think about it. Some of us were literally born and this leader was still alive. Like they were, they were like maybe 10 or 20 years into their, their leadership. I mean, a lot of young people are out here talking about, you know, we need younger leaders in terms of, and democracy speaks uh, obviously about representation. Is, is that, should that be a priority for us? Should we get more young people in office? What are your thoughts, Trevor? You know, wanted to go first. Let me take a stab. I'll go after him. Um, I think um, being like a young person is not an ideology. So I don't really, you know, I'm not really big on the representation of being like a young person in, in politics. It's about like the system, you know. If a young person is going to come, a young revolutionary leader is going to come and he has showed the people that he can lead the people, why not? If he's in his 50s and he has showed the same qualities of leadership, and the people agree with him. It's a matter of what does he have to offer. It's not. It's not a matter of age. You cannot. Like Thomas Ankara was young. Um, Lumumba was not. Like okay. Um, Nkrumah was a bit older than most of them. So it's it's really about what you can offer. It's not really about your age. And I I feel like people Africans shouldn't dwell on you know or they should not be too big on this uh, representation of it. It's just like a representation of black people, black people in, a, in, especially in the American context, in a bastardized system. To me, I don't really care about representation. I care about how the system is being implemented. I really care about the system, not really about the representation. No, I totally agree with that, with that sentiment. Uh, leadership is not a question of biology at all. It's a, it's a question of, of ideology. Ideology meaning we have a, a very clear diagnosis of what the problems of our society are, and then we can make a correct uh, prescription of how we should treat those problems. And there is nothing about age that uh, guarantees those things. And there's nothing about age that should entitle us to make claims on leadership. However, young, big, young people are a very important social force in any society for two reasons. One is that uh, inevitably they're gonna take over the reins. And so they must be groomed in leadership. So they must be involved, not necessarily taking over the system. If they have the capability, the competence to run a system, they should definitely take it over. But uh, for them to learn, uh, patient learning is also important. But secondly, young people, we represent usually rebellion and rebellion not uh, turning society on its head but being a mirror for society to say, to remind society of what its aspirations are and to whip it into a sense of urgency to move faster and quicker in the direction of those aspirations. Because when people grow older, they get a sense of complacency. The world is like that, I cannot change it. And therefore I have done my part. When we young people start to come into our own, we remind society that, you know, the frontiers of possibilities can be pushed out further and wider. Uh, and our energy is going to be employed in the direction of doing exactly that. We, we demand to be trained, to be given a chance to learn so that we are able to uh, ably take over from you people. So it's a very important social force internally that must be handled carefully because it can be destructive, but biology uh, is no, by no means an entitlement to leadership whatsoever. Oh, sorry, oh, you wanna say something? Yeah, go on. Uh, Okay, I was just going to say that um, 
like the youth are the reflection of the society. So, you know, especially like in the African context, you have to look at how, you know, you have created this culture of um, oppression. So it's like when the youth get there, there's no, if they don't have any ideology guiding them, there's no, uh, there's no possible, there's no like assurance that they're going to even, you know, do anything like different from, you know, the older guys are in, that are there like at the moment. So it's just a matter of ideology. For sure, the like young people in Africa have like so much power. I think the most important thing that they should be doing right now, we all should be doing right now, is getting ourselves involved in politics in the sense that or getting ourselves involved in class struggle and class consciousness. And then so we can apply that into like a bigger force, into a bigger like, political force. Yeah, I think uh, I'm going to register some slight disagreement. So I don't necessarily think that like, you know, age um, is this magical factor, but I think the African continent is in a very, very specific situation. Whereas we've stated, I believe the average age on the continent is 19 years old. And I mean, just think about that for a second. And like, you know, the average age of a leader is 65 years old. It's a massive difference. And I think that they should, instead of, for example, I'm not just saying, oh, therefore we need no old people in government. That's not what I'm saying. I think that there needs to be some element of coordination between younger generations and older generations within the framework of politics. So we need a large amount of youth, possibly even a representative amount of youth in government, uh, or at least in civil society to refresh these political institutions with new ideas. Because at the end of the day, it's not even like if, if we're talking about the effectiveness of democracy, right, and ruling by the people, it is more likely that someone who is from the group that you're representing, which is in this case, the youth, will understand certain issues better. And it's just reminding me of a certain quote is that, you know, we don't uh, inherit this world from our ancestors, but we borrow it from our children. So all the leaders uh, I would like to just, oh yeah, and I know Trevor is going to say something. <laughs> I just have a question for you. Yeah, go on. You at home? Sorry? How many kids are you at home? Well, like three. How many parents do you have? Two. Should you start running the family because you have more children than parents? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. The thing is, here, here's the thing, right? Here's uh, the thing. I don't think, I think it's, that's a bit of a false equivalence, my friend. No, 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 no. no, no, no. <laughs> This, this was your logic because there are more youth in Africa today. There therefore should be more youth in uh, in, in government because uh, a couple has eight children. Therefore, more children should be running the family than the parents themselves because the children will better understand what the children want than the parents themselves. Uh, but the ability to run a family is not about the children being more. It is important, absolutely, to understand. I think what Yuna and I are saying is that uh, those who should who should be who should be involved, can, the only criterion of their involvement cannot be because they are young, okay? Uh, it must also be because they are competent. Otherwise, you run a risk of just uh, running down countries simply because, uh, you know, we have a social force that we want to, to appease. So, but that was just a... Uh, <laughs> Let me explain why that's a false equivalence now. Uh, I think the a family works radically different than a government. And um, I mean, you can, you can argue from, from different perspectives that you know, the family is the basis of you know, civil society from a micro, micro, micro perspective. But I think when you put into like a, a parlance of like, you know, a family towards, some, towards some, like, you know, some level of time, for example, 
um, the kids are going to grow up, right? And eventually they're going to reach that stage whereby they can actually start making decisions, not only for themselves, but decisions that will impact the family. And you find that it actually ends up happening. What you're, what you're talking about starts to happen. Where, for example, if there are eight kids and there's two parents, right? The kids have now reached the age of the maturity, age of maturity, and now they have to deal with family assets, right? And now, obviously, what, who does it make sense to take the reins? Obviously, if you look at the parents, the two parents will just start to, if they have the certain ideologies, but now the eight kids are the ones who arguably have more time in life to live and to reap the benefits of the assets, who benefits more from being able to take over the family, right? But if I now apply that in the case of government, right? I mean, obviously you have to be competent. We're not here, we, there've been several young leaders. Let, let me make that clear. Several young leaders in the thirties who have risen to power on this continent and they have ruined their countries, right? But all I'm saying is that because of the, the level of the population of youth from a representative perspective, it would be good to see more youth in politics, but it needs to be a coordination between the older generation with the experience and the youth with the new ideas. If the older generation is cut out from that process, then the whole uh, house of cards begins to fall. If the youth are also equally cut out, then that's where you're going to start having issues. So it has to be something that's you know, a bit of a cycle. That's how we should start. And I totally agree with Trevor that there needs to be some element of training and some element of raising young people to become leaders and it needs to be a coordination process. Completely agree. That, that was one of the things that the colonialism did to us, obliterating that those training schools into adulthood, into responsibility that we used to have. Now they're no longer there, okay? Mm-hmm. We want to go into government with our own impression that we have of the world, sometimes incomplete, sometimes false, and sometimes it's been ruinous, uh, as you've stated. But yeah, no, yeah, definitely more young people should be involved in government. But it's incumbent on us as young people to interest ourselves in learning uh, because age alone shouldn't qualify us to be there. Facts. You know, go ahead. Uh, just to add to everything that's been said, I just feel like there, like obviously, there are some like the older generation that are not involved in politics that should be involved in politics, but because of how you know how politics in Africa works, I think those are the people that you know we should the young people should gravitate towards, not the current people in power. Like you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, that's what. Mm. I'm saying. Yeah, no one does we. As we begin to come to the end, I think we'll just discuss one last part because I think a lot of people, uh, I mean, a lot of young Africans are now starting to get this sort of energy. And I want us to look at it from a bit of a critical perspective. Um, a lot of us young Africans uh, are very impressionable. We've now sort of <clears throat> hopped onto the bandwagon of Pan-Africanism. A lot of people are starting to find that idea more popular, uh, but there's also a lot of the youth that are looking for specifically in quotes populist leaders and by populist we just mean people that are uh sort of they have this you know idea ideology that's expressed by a certain group or party I mean, sort of a part of society and they're sort of just taking that view and they're saying that you know i'm going to rule as a leader of the people and now there's the government that uh in quotes the people who are dragging this country down and that rhetoric has actually become very popular in being able to whip up votes uh, we've seen the likes of people like Bobby Wine, and we will go into, I'm, I'm sure, some discussion about Bobby Wine later on. But I want to know your general opinion. You know, um, what, what is your response to this, you know, youth ideology of things like revolution? Uh, what, do you, what do you think about that? Um, for a true African revolution, like according to, you know, readings of... Uh, of Kwame Nkrumah, um, of um, 
France Fanon. It was like built from the ground to the top. It was built socialism from the ground to the top. I don't think people like Bobby Wine are committed to building socialism. They are just um, they're just going to establish liberal democracy, just like you have it in Ghana. You know, I think the youths must be they must be focused on you know organizing like organizing the masses of the people, the working class, the peasants in Africa, other than just, you know, trying to get themselves into uh, political positions. I think that's like the most important thing. And you should also see it as, I think the most important thing is to also see it as, you know, not something that, oh, it is election time in like two years. Let's just, let's just do, uh, you know, make noise and, you know, start a political party. No, you must, you must form a strong base between the people that's, you know, the people, you know, or like the people who vet or approve, you know, such leaders by their actions and their responsibility to the people, not because they are popular. It's like they should be, like they should build that kind of base. That's when they can gain the trust of the people, the trust of the working class people in like African countries. Other than that, I just feel like, you know, if they do it any other way because they are popular, it's just, it's just another experiment that will definitely feel. I feel like even if Obi-Wan won the election, I think because of how politicized the military is in um, Uganda, I think it will have caused a lot of problems for him. So I just feel like if they're not building if you're not building a strong base, it's going to collapse. Yeah, I, I want to make uh, three points. Point number one is to, to push back uh, against what Iuna is saying. You know, you're falling for the trap of uh, these comparable intellectuals, uh, liberalists, who are importing wholesale uh, liberal theory into the African context. Uh, by, 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 by importing wholesale a Marxist theory into the African context. Uh, socialism also emerged as, a, as an idea within very specific historic circumstances that are not, that the conditions for socialism are just not right in most African countries. We do not have a sizable working class most of our people are still in peasant society. Uh, we are still pre-industrial societies in most part. So even the consciousness of socialism, whereas, whereas Marxism gives us a potent weapon of, 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 as, as an, a tool of analysis, I think the proposition that we should be mobilizing on a, along class lines is, is quite, quite a, a, I don't call it, it is, it is, it is a, a bit out of touch with the reality on the ground because we don't even have a sizable working class. In Uganda, 68% of us are still in subsistence agriculture. So when you tell me to mobilize a working class, <laughs> I cannot even find them. Uh, maybe like 70% of Africa's population is still in, in, in peasant agriculture, okay? And, uh, I, and that pushback is important because most African leaders uh, post-independence pushed for socialist uh, regimes making a similar mistake. The conditions were not right uh, on the ground. Ujama and Nyerere and Ujama in Tanzania, uh, Ujama collapsed because it was uh, 
uh, it was out of touch with the reality of the ground. Most of these socialist regimes did not pick up. Now, in a country like South Africa, where that crystallization of classes, socioeconomic classes, has begun to take root between a, work, a sizable working class and a clear-cut uh, bourgeoisie class, the EFF, the Economic Freedom Fighters there, is, uh, is gaining ground. They got a million votes in the previous election, which means that uh, there's a sizable a working class that is speaking there. I don't think there's a working class that is sizable in Nigeria. I don't think there's one in Kenya that is sizable. Most of us are still living a peasant lifestyles. So even our propositions therefore must be in touch with the reality on the ground as what does it mean for us to organize politically as being in pre-industrial, pre-capitalist societies. That is number one. But number two, uh, Amilka Cabra wrote a very powerful essay. It is called uh, the, the, the Weapon of Theory. Part of the global populist movement and its shortcomings has been a rebellion against knowledge expertism, knowledge expertise and elites, so to speak. So young people disappointed by elites have now turned against a understanding, scientific understanding of things. We are becoming very emotional and sentimental. However, any revolutionary movement uh, must anchor itself on a theoretical understanding of the unique conditions of society in which it is working. And the Cabra's essay is all over the internet, very, very sharp and, and powerful. Now, people like Bobby Wine in my own country, I find it an insult to the Sankaras of this world, even to Museveni himself, to call Bobby Wine a revolutionary. That man is a pseudo-revolutionary. Uh, in fact, I compare him to, to, to Trump in this way. <clears throat> he represents a very important segment of the population. So there are two people. There's, Trump, Trump the person and Trump the messenger. Trump the person is despicable. No one must associate with him. Trump the messenger carries a very important message. In fact, Trump's support increased in the previous election from 2016. 70 million Americans voted for Trump after what happened last summer. That is crazy. Why? Because the Democratic Party, the liberals on the left have responded to the wrong incentives, to the wrong motivations of why people are voting for Trump. Similarly, in Uganda, Bobby Wine may not be the most qualified, qualified person for president, and I don't think he is. I don't think he's competent enough to run Uganda, but that doesn't mean we should shut out the constituency in the country for which he speaks. Young people, especially in urban areas, who feel marginalized, whose aspirations are growing much faster and much quicker than the conditions that they inhabit within their own country. So uh, if Bobby Wine, uh, you know, anchored his uh, movement on some theoretical understanding of the society in which he is uh, pursuing his political ambition, it would be, it would probably manifest itself in very different ways. So uh, I, I would, I, I can never, I cannot refer to him as a, I think pseudo-revolution, populist leaders who are whipping up the sentiment of the general population uh, against the status quo. But it's unsurprising. It is nothing new. Young people have always been a, the, 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 the crucible of rebellion in society. The only different thing now is that because of the increased globalization, faster, quicker communication, uh, both nationally and internationally and continentally specifically, we communicate much faster. We know what is happening in different places much quicker than we used to in the past. And so it suddenly seems as if you know, young Africans are now becoming much more awake than in the past. But the generation of the Museveni's, of the Sankaras, of the Jerry Rawlings, who overthrew military dictatorships, uh, were also more, much more revolutionary than we are. 
okay? And they did uh, much more than we have yet done at this point. We're definitely going to do much better than them, but the phenomenon of youth agitation, there's nothing new about it. Only that now in our present epoch, it's being mediated by different forms of technology that make it more amplified and make it seem you know, much more radical when it, is, it hasn't yet matured to that stage. So uh, I think that uh, we must first make the right propositions in terms of what the basis of mobilization must be. Socialism, uh, we, must, we must know whether the conditions obtain within our societies. Number two, we must anchor our uh, political movements on some theoretical understanding, a good, proper, correct diagnosis, theoretical diagnosis of what our societies are uh, in. Secondly, thirdly, rather, we shouldn't dismiss uh, populist leaders because they're populist. They speak for an important constituency of the populations in which they, they come from. Um, like, first off, I like to say, like, I, um, I'm a Maoist, so I subscribe to um, theories that concern third world countries. So I totally understand what you were saying about theory and conditions of like um, the country and how you apply theory. I just feel like um, for like, if like for like a country like Nigeria, you know, you must consider, you must consider, you must really, really consider class, you know. Uh, and you, you can also compare it to what was going on in China before Mao took over, you know. The landlords owned all of the lands that people were working as slaves on the field and people were dying. And then when Mao came, he redistributed the land back to the people. It's still, it's very, very close. And if you look at the working class during that time, it was, there was really no working class. It was like the like landlords and the peasant farmers. You can also look at um, Cuba as an example too. You know, it was um, the landlords and the slaves working on the fields. So I think you can also apply that same context to a country like Nigeria, or a country like um, Ghana, or a country like um, Togo, or any any African country, basically, because it's still the same. It's still the same uh, thing, but it's just that uh, the middle class or the working class is just a bit like smaller, I guess. So I think you should not. I think we should not uh, totally dismiss class analysis in the African context. I just feel like, you know, as like a whole continent, we have a lot of thinkers and we, everybody or anyone can come together, work together to build a socialism that is applicable to that country. I can understand what I mean. You must build, you must build structures that apply to the country. For a country like Nigeria, you have, um, right now, there's a crisis, there's, there's an ongoing crisis in Nigeria with you know, the herdsmen, um, they bring their cattles from like from the north to like the west, and they have to work. And like I understand that it's, it is culture, but we're in twenty twenty one. You have to change that. You have to make sure that you know before before you rear like cattles like that, you have to have a ranch where you you have to have a license to get your ranch, and you don't have to. Do you, do you understand what I mean? Because now it's causing tribal, serious tribal tensions that can, you know, if the government doesn't step in, it can lead into a war. Nobody knows what can happen because the people in the South are totally against the idea of, you know, these cattle areas, you know, like on their land. And that, 
also like I shared the same um, sentiments, but you know, you must apply like in, in that kind of situation, you must apply, uh, you must look at the conditions of that then apply a good solution to it, which is ranching. Also, if you look at, um, uh, look at Ghana, I think Ghana is trying to nationalize their cocoa industry. And you must understand that there are peasants, like farmers working on those cocoa fields for multinational companies. So if, you know, if Ghana nationalizes that, it's obviously will improve the working conditions and the material conditions of those farmers working on, you know, those fields. So I, I think when we're talking about theory, we must look at, uh, like we must not totally dismiss class or any other thing. We must look at how we can apply those theories to, um, to the living conditions of our people. I'll give an example. When uh, Fidel Castro, um, when Fidel Castro took power in, 19, in, in the 60s and then the Soviet's representative came to, to Cuba and then he told, you know, the Soviet representative that, you know, they went against Marx and, you know, they were able to establish socialism in a different way as opposed to what Marx wrote. But then this um, Soviet representative said, no, they just did it their own way because it's, you know, it fits their own um, living conditions. So, you know, you apply whatever, because at the end of the day, no theory is absolute, you know, because every day, every day people look at, you know, people's theory or apply it differently. So if you apply, uh, if you use Mao's theory in a place like Uganda and, you know, it doesn't work, you can, you know, you can tweak it and look at how it will work for everybody. Feel like no theory is absolute. Yeah, can I just, I wanted to add on to that and then I'll just state my opinion on the revolutionaries, then we'll do last sort of rounding up from every single person. Um, <clears throat> but I will mention, uh, yeah, what Walter Rodney talked about in his book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And yeah, you can see the clear Marxist undertones in the book. But the way he describes it for the people who are listening is, um, there's like, I think it's four different stages of society. So at first you have the hunter-gatherers. You know, this is, you know, where you basically just hunting and you're basically providing for yourself and your uh, the person, let's say that you've, your partner and your family, I guess, uh, the family structure is formed. And then from there, you go into more of a society that's based on agriculture and one that's based on herding cattle, then slaughtering for food. And then you start to see stratification start to happen. But that doesn't mean necessarily that, okay, it's a socialist society. Then now with the influence of technology, you start to see industrialization, you start to see the means of production coming to sort of fruition, that's where you start to see capitalism become a sort of uh, sort of time frame in one of these, yeah, I'll just call it an epoch as well. So it's, it's one of these epochs that we go through. Then from there, now you can go into a socialist society. Um, but that's just a bit of context for those people. But that, by all means, Walter Rodney does not have a monopoly on what it is, but that's it's a good way of looking at it. Uh, that society can be stratified, but that doesn't mean necessarily it's going to be a socialist society. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that necessarily like distribution of wealth cannot happen in that context, just like as you know mentioned with Mao in that context. So just because, for example, African countries um, 
uh, you know, set in a certain type of way where there's, you know, subsistence agriculture and it's like, you know, 70% of the population are undertaking the, those tasks. That doesn't necessarily mean that redistribution of wealth can't happen just to the listeners to sort of, you know, uh, give you that idea. Then I want to get into, you know, revolutionary leaders, all these different things. I think the main problem with revolutionary leaders and populist leaders sometimes uh, is that you, you tend to fall prey to the rhetoric that they bring. So, They'll just be talking, they'll be talking about how bad the government is. And as Trevor said, you know, nowadays with social media, et cetera, you can talk about how the government is and people will follow you, they'll retreat, they will agree with your views. And at the end of the day, you get into power and then you end up being a weak leader. I mean, that is a possibility. And unfortunately, that's what I'm, I'm kind of scared of. It's like, you know, we shouldn't be so quick uh, to just fall for the trap of rhetoric. Or at least if you know that they're going to be a weak leader, the party itself needs to find a way of managing that government from the back end, right? So that the people, are, their, their, needs are, their needs are satisfied. They've heard what they want to hear. But for you to follow up with results, you have to have a very strong government. And this is what I think a lot of people forget. A government does not just consist of a head of state. There is obviously, whether it's the parliamentary machinery or the cabinet itself in terms of the executive branch, there is so much that goes into a government. Even the executive can be great, but the individuals on the ground in devolved governments can be doing nothing. So this, it's a huge thing. This is, you know, things we need to look at. Just for example, just because Bobby Wine, let's say, becomes president of Uganda one day, doesn't mean that Uganda is just going to sort of flip over. And this is what I think, as, as youth, we need to also just start thinking more about that, especially a lot of youth who are debating where Africa is going to go. Like we need to get rid of that idea of, oh, within eight years, then the whole of Africa is going to change. We're going to have this, you know, look at the burgeoning youth, you know, we're going to rise from the ashes. We're going to become like Wakanda. No, like that's not necessarily what's going to happen. Um, and progress as, as Trevor has stated before is very slow. So if that means we, if we're not banking on one good head of state, we're banking on consecutive good government. And this is what I'm telling people. It's not about, it's less about the people and it's more about the institutions that they occupy. If you have weak institutions, you can have the best leader, but they will not do anything for your country. So we need to focus on institution building. And this is why we need more people behind the scenes. And yes, people in the scene or like, you know, in front of the cameras, those people are equally important, yes. They are there to whip up support, but you better, if you're thinking of challenging government, right? You better have a strong government to back you because I'm, I'm, I'm gonna definitely ask Trevor uh, about obviously the workings of, for example, the Ugandan military, how that, <laughs> how that would work if Bobby Wine was in power, just, just to give you some sort of perspective. Because the thing is, I mean, guys, um, if you wanna go back to this idea of revolutions, all this, we need to stop also romanticizing that idea because if you if you look at our continent we've had plenty of revolutions in fact military coup after military coup i think it was in the 60s or the 70s i can't remember which one but there was almost 40 coups that year 40 coups and that's that's in a, literally within a decade that's 40 coups it's ridiculous almost like four coups every single year right so we're, we're very privy to this idea of of revolution and uh, some statistics just to, to sort of make you reconsider your position. Uh, this Paul Collier, uh, I can't remember which book this is. I think was it Bottom Billion? I can't remember which one was talk, uh, which book it was. But um, a civil war can actually cost up to four times the annual GDP of a country. And close proximity of nations, right? 
uh, these these nations that are close, they can up, lose up to half of their GDP. So this, I mean, revolutions aren't looking good economically for for many African countries if we decide to like host them. So I'd say that is definitely like the last resort. You should not be looking to pick up arms. Like that that is the last thing. Even if the person's a dictator, right? Because you could end up actually going into a position where you're going to create self-perpetuating dictatorships if that's not what you want. Because why? When you get into power, and now I'm just going to sort of bring this, I'm going to use an example of obviously the, the, the Russian civil war, where there's like now a power vacuum. If you've gone into power and then you're trying to consolidate your power, then by virtue of you consolidating your power, you might have to become a dictator yourself to be able to get the country stable. Then what happens? People begin to hate you you then become the dictator that people want to take down. So I think as Africans, we need to think of it as a, you know, step-by-step progression. We need to be patient. We need to, yes, get involved in politics if you want to, right? But find ways to be able to influence government and to build the institutions. Institutions are more important than the people that hold the offices within them. So now I'm just going to pass off to Trevor. Um, You can obviously comment on what I've just said and then close off. And then we can go to Iuna. You can comment on anything else, just close off, and then uh, I'll just close off for the podcast. Yeah, uh, no, that's uh, that's an important sort of uh, consideration that uh, that you have raised. I think uh, as young people, we must keep the fire, but that fire must be tempered with a critical understanding of reality. If we delude ourselves with only fantastical dreams of what is possible uh, and not uh, address ourselves to what actually is happening and what is is, is feasible, uh, we shall be very disappointed uh, by uh, life. Uh, progress is low, it's hard, it is difficult, it's painful, it's painstaking, but that's just the nature of change. And if we're unwilling to do that, if we are hoping to go from zero to one overnight, uh, politics and improving people's living conditions is not our place. We can try and go and do charity, we shall see people smiling after giving them food, or I don't know, paying for somebody's tuition, but the work of building systems, building nations, that one is a lifelong commitment. And if you're looking for overnight uh, uh, results, it's the wrong place, Uh, but the fire must be there because as I said, ours is to show society, remind them of what is possible and push the boundaries, the frontiers of of, of possibilities further out uh, and provide the energy to be the motive force of society. So whereas our aspirations must remain idealistic, our, uh, our, our methods, our workings must remain tempered by, by reality. Um, yeah, this has been great. I absolutely enjoyed the conversation. Wonderful. Let's, Yuna, any last things to say before we close off? Um, I think on the issue of romanticizing um, revolutions in Africa and the military context, of that, I feel like you must understand how, like, you know, formation of the military, formation of the military, or interference of military in power was to, you know, continue, you know, neo-colonialism. So every, like, every revolution or so-called revolution by those these um, military leaders have not, you know, changed or improved the material conditions of the people, and you know. I just feel even Carmen Kumar wrote about this in his book, um, Class Struggle in Africa. And he, he specifically wrote about um, coup d'etats and, you know, the nature of reactionaries that like were in the military. 
And I also think um, the youth should um, not give up. You know. National building is doesn't take four years, eight years, something. It's a lifelong commitment. Like like what Trevor said, we must be involved in struggle of our people. Every young person must be involved and must look at it and must examine the critical conditions of our people and must also, you know, come up with solutions to bring our people out of, you know, to improve the material conditions of our people. Um, I also think the best way to show the people that we can build, um, that, that we are committed to national building is doing it by ourselves, like building our own political structures, you know, like showing, being a government in a government to serve the people, you know, that, that is when you can win people on your side. And that's the idea of, of a vanguard party. And the fact that, you know, it can give education to the people, you can also, uh, you can also provide what, you know, the government hasn't provided for the people. So in that way, you're, Alice, it's you're winning people to yourself. And this is not, this is not um, an issue of, oh, we have an election in four years, let's, you know, start a party today and let's do that. No, it's an organization of the people and also making, making the average person also being a part of, you know, of the party too, because the party must be the representative, must be the people themselves. It must not be, you know, some unpicked people from nowhere and just come to, you know, trying to get the people in like in their feelings to so that's for their own um, for their own gain, like something like what Bobby Wine did. But I don't think Bobby Wine is like that. I think he kind of still stands for the people's interest. But if you understand what I mean, there's some polit politicians that you know look at uh, um, the access, the um, they look at the um, the condition of the country and appeal to a certain you know certain demographic people just to win them over for their own political gain. But I think we must build a structure ourselves to show the people what we can do. Because if you don't show, if you don't show the people your your value or what you can offer them, there's no need for them to you know to even be on your side. So you must lead. We must lead by you know by showing the people um, what we can offer them. I think this was very very great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I'm just gonna close off. I think you did mention something about Bobby Wine. Yeah, I don't think let's say as as I don't go to the lens of Trevor Trevor is saying, for example, Bobby Wine has parallels to Trump's. I do get what he was saying, though, in terms of populist leaders, he would count as a populist leader because he's trying to this is like anti-establishment. And I can definitely yeah. see the parallels that he was trying to draw, but I'd make the distinction of like there's no scapegoating. And uh, you could argue maybe in quotes, he's a good populist, but I think there's different challenges in relation to African leadership. Um, I think we might have to do a part two on this one later, guys. Maybe this in, in, in another season or so, we'll have to see what we do. Uh, but today, because of time, we're gonna have to cut it short. But thank you so much for listening. I, I respect uh, all of the different guests that we had today. Thank you so much for you know, taking time out of your busy schedule to be here. To everyone that's listened, much love and respect. Um, and please be sure to go to my link in my bio to register for the Pan-African Youth Conference. You can be able to find my, like the bio on Instagram and on TikTok if you're interested in that. And without further ado, thank you so much. And I will see you in the next episode.